This week on track, we are delighted to be joined by GB international athlete and recent winner of the Intercounties cross-country race at Presswold Hall, Mary McLennan. Mary is a three-time Scottish national cross-country champion, has represented GB at the European and World Cross-Country Championships, and also has impressive PBs across the distances. Mary is a passionate advocate for women's sport and is the co-founder of the Kainiska Advocacy Organisation, which aims to develop a sporting community which fosters a safe environment and has the protection of women at its heart. We are speaking to Mary about a week after her Intercounties win, and we're delighted she's agreed to talk to us here at Track. Hi, Mary, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for uh, giving us a bit of your time here at Track. We, we really appreciate it. No, no problem at all. Um, so we're, we're talking on a Friday, um, Friday afternoon. Um, you've been kind enough to give us some of your time. Have you done your, your running for the day? Um, what's your day look like today? Yeah, um, I normally have a rest day on a Friday, actually, but um, I just did a very, very short three-mile run to catch up with a friend. So uh, sort of like a, a donut run. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. And um, you've obviously... Uh, You've been working as well this week um, because you balance your running with with a full time job at uh, I'm right in thinking is it Sport England you work? Yes, yeah. Okay, and so how does that look? What's your what are your top tips and and how do you prioritise your running alongside full time work and what does that balance look like for you? Um, so I work nine to five, um, and I try to run in the morning before work and then after work. Um, I'm probably quite fortunate in that um, my work is reasonably flexible like they know I'm a runner so if there's like x amount of work to be done if I like for example in the winter when it was darker hours if I wanted to get out at three and run and then just finish at six instead then that they were quite amenable to that and if I get a slightly later night then I'll prioritize sleep and kind of take a sort of morning break um and fit in like a morning run so it's it's reasonably flexible like sometimes it can't be because things get busy and we have deadlines and stuff but mostly it's pretty flexible yeah okay that's great and working at Sport England then what what type of role do you have there and um how do you get into that sort of area yeah so I do public affairs um essentially so it's my role as external affairs officer but it's basically public affairs it's slightly um, different to like traditional public affairs just because Sport England is an arm's length body of the government. So you can't directly lobby, um, but we can sort of influence in different ways and engage with parliamentarians to raise awareness of the work that we do. Um, so we sort of have to be across all of the different areas of work that Sport England do. Mm-hmm. OK, great. And um, fairly new to the role, are you? Did I see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just started two months ago now. Okay, great. All right, perfect. Um, we're also obviously talking just shy of a week after uh, your your great win and uh, at the Intercounties Cross Country. So firstly, congratulations um, on that. How have the legs recovered um, about six days after the, the, big, the big race? Um, mixed. Like, I don't know, I stupidly went to the gym and whenever I have like an easy running week, I try and do like lift a little bit more just because when you're doing hard sessions all the time you never want to um so my legs feel awful <laughs> um, and I just can't tell how much of that is because of the the mud in the hills and how much is because of me being just generally quite weak in the gym okay so is gym something you do regularly when you can um throughout your training anyway yeah so I aim with the best of intentions to get two sessions a week done in the gym I'm gonna say I do three every two weeks okay yeah um, I don't often get the two done just motivation is low I it's, it's the first thing to drop off the schedule when you're tired yeah okay well hopefully we'll get into your training in, in a little bit if that's okay but um I suppose if we start with with that inter-counties that win um how did the race unfold? What are your reflections on it, having had a bit of time to, to think about it now? Um, I'm sure you were chuffed, but but what what are your reflections on the race? Yeah, um, I think for me, it was a really significant race because obviously it's, a, it's, an, like, it's a really important one, amazing one to win, just because I suppose it's as close as what we have to a British Championships for 
cross country and don't really have one um but not only that like I I didn't really feel particularly good going into the race <clears throat> just because of the time of my cycle I had really heavy legs uh, and I sort of was just hoping that I'd be fit enough on the day that even on a bad day I'd still be able to pull it off um and I sort of ended out on my own sort of quite early on in the race we hadn't quite finished the first lap yet and I was already in the lead by a reasonable amount which was not my intention and I sort of I didn't panic because the same thing happened at the Scottish Nationals a couple of weeks previously um but I I kind of had a feeling that Jess Gibbon might come back to me um I knew that she's kind of an athlete who sort of winds up a race and I so when she did catch me, I wasn't surprised, but she did manage to kind of put more distance into me than I expected mm -hmm. um, or than, that, than I had planned. <laughs> I'm sort of hoping to just latch onto her and stay there. Um, but yeah, I think I definitely had a bit of a mental battle over, you know, do I settle for second? Like, am I happy with second? Can I close that gap? Um, and it probably wasn't something that I really decided on until we had that like long last sort of stretch before going into the final field that I realized the gap was small enough that I could close it if I, you know, picked it up and, and started racing again. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was amazing. And then I, and then I lost my shoe. Um, it just felt like one of those days where nothing was going my way and I yeah. had to just make it work. Okay. And um, so obviously during the race, that battle with Jess, so Jess came second and Kate Avery came third. Um, do, do you, go into those sorts of races with a, a really structured game plan are you someone who just goes out to race so I, I read that you've described cross country as as racing in its purest form and that's why you love it um so do you just let things happen or are you sort of quite structured in how you attack a race um I'm not really that structured I, I mean what I normally do before a race is I set like um I try to set sort of an outcome goal and a process goal so I'll normally try and set like two outcome goals so that you know my a goal was to win and my b goal was to make the podium okay um and then my process goals will be like how I want to behave in the race almost so like work hard up the hills or um push hard when I think other people are struggling or um you know stay focused or you know and so just so that if basically everything goes not to plan at all and your outcome goals are out the window then you can still feel like you've achieved something because you've managed to comply with your process goals um I've had like huge fluctuations in my running career or my time running um and I, I've, I've had times where, yeah, my outcome goals have never been achieved at all. So I had to start setting process goals, essentially, so that I didn't feel depressed after a race. Mm. Um, but now it's something I, I just do all the time because I think it um, helps keep your focus mid-race. Mm -hmm. um, it stops you from focusing so much on like the end of the race and like you can kind of, yeah, it changes your attitude mid-race. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I've, I've not heard someone describe it in such sort of uh, um in those sort of words before but that that's a really interesting take and i suppose it, it's a funny one you, i suppose you can always achieve your process goals even if your outcome goals perhaps don't come yeah. to fruition but i has has it ever been in the other way have you ever um achieved outcome goals but not been happy with the process in which you've achieved them or do those two always seem to happen together I'm not sure. I think, I mean, Saturday might be a little bit of a, where process goals didn't quite happen, to be honest. Um, you know, I said that I would like work really hard up the hills and use them to my advantage. And I did, but I also got caught on a hill. Okay. Um, that, that was where Jess caught me. And I think it's because yeah, my legs just felt so heavy. I was finding it difficult to work up the hills. So mm -hmm. like, yeah, I suppose that's, that's the only time I can really think of it, not quite going to plan, but um yeah, I mean, I achieved my outcome goals. <laughs> what did it? Yeah, okay. And um, how's the week been afterwards? Have you had lots of people like myself contact you and congratulate you and ask for interviews and, and things like that? 
Um, not, not honestly, apart from you guys, not like anyone out of the ordinary. Um, like just, I, there's a, um, a journalist who I feel like is almost a friend of mine now, uh, called Fraser Klein, who is up in the north of Scotland. And, uh, yeah, we had a good old chin wag, um, after the race, but no, it's been a pretty usual week in terms of work and stuff. And, uh, yeah, not too much, um, harassment from <laughs> journalists. Just me. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you mentioned your shoe. Um, so we had yeah, lots of the finishing pictures we saw that you only had one shoe on and, um, how did that happen? Did you consider stopping together? And I think I saw on Instagram that someone managed to find it for you after the race. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the mud was really sticky and honestly, I've seen this happen to so many people. And I normally, if a course is really muddy, I'll put tape around my shoes because I obviously don't want to lose my shoe. Um, but didn't do that this time. And it just, it was going into the last field. So I think it must've been the last like 800 meters or something. Um, and the mud just suctioned my shoe off. Um, I mean, sure, for a fleeting second, I considered stopping and getting my shoe, but I was already quite stressed that Jess might catch me again. So it wasn't really an option. Um, and I think, yeah, if she'd been closer, I'm not really sure how much grip I'd have had to put a really good sprint in, but fortunately it didn't come to that. Um, and yeah, then afterwards, my, uh, my boyfriend kindly went and dug it out of the mud. Okay, great. So that's great. Um, yeah, so I, so I mentioned that you've sort of described cross-country as racing in its purest form, and you seem to have had great success over cross-country, as you have done on over track and, and other things as well. But do you, what is it about cross-country that you, you think you're good at, that you like? Um, what, what is it about the cross-country that you enjoy? Um, so I'm from the Highlands of Scotland, um, and it's no secret that the weather is not uh, that favourable. Um, and I think there's something I quite like about cross country, like toughing it out against the elements and it being very much like you against the sort of land and the, the weather and the elements. I think there's there's something in me that quite likes that part of cross country. Um, I also, I think it's, it's rather, it's less what I like about cross country and what I don't like about track is that for me, track I find quite hard to just race because there's also this time element so your race is almost controlled a little bit by the times that you're aiming to run and like clock watching mm -hmm. whereas in cross country that's just not present at all it's not part of how you run a race and so for me it's a less stressful form of racing as well um like you really are just reading your opponents and you're reading like the kind of course and you're reading what other people are doing and there's no other distraction of like am I running fast enough and should I be running faster at this point and oh no I've dropped off the pace because well, for me and that's a that's a me thing I understand other people don't have the same issue with track but in on a, in a track race I'm just like I just I get really overwhelmed with the clock and I almost stop racing the people mm -hmm. and like I've had coaches before say oh well you know let whoever go and just run your own race and to me that just goes against everything that racing is because in cross country I would never be like okay bye I'll see you at the finish line like you don't do that you're trying and race you're trying to race them and obviously you're just going more off the feel of your body than off of a pace I think that's yeah for me the difference between them okay. yeah that makes sense um you mentioned that in the you won well you, you did win the Scottish championship this year as well in in Feb um and am I right in saying that's three-time Scottish champion now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, perfect. Okay, so how did that race um, unfold? And that must be hugely, um, you know, must be really proud of, of being Scottish champion three times now. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I think someone said afterwards that there's only been six women who've done it three times or more since World War II. Wow. Um, so I feel like I'm joining a, 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 an interesting legacy there. Um, but yeah, no, it was a good race. Um, I think it's Scottish nationals is always a weird one because over the years, sometimes you get a really strong field or you get one standout participant um, and that just they run away with the field. Um, and other years, you know, it's maybe less so of like big names and kind of a deeper field of like I don't know how to hierarchy of 
levels, but maybe more like mid-place athletes. Um, but yeah, the race kind of, there was a, a, a group of maybe four or five of us, I think, in the first lap. It's three laps, it's 10K. It was actually over 10K. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, and then I sort of was just testing I felt very good that day compared to Intercounties. Um, legs felt really fresh. Um, and I sort of was testing the pack to see how people were responding on hills and then uh, also over like the longer, flatter stretches um, and just seeing if anybody was coming with me. And I think it was on one of those gaps that I, I made a gap and uh, no one came with me. And so I then just sort of tried to extend my gap as much as possible. And I think that was the difference with Intercounties like I felt good at Scottish Nationals so I was able to just keep replicating that same tactic that I had been doing whilst I was with the pack and like using the same bits of the course to test and try to extend my lead um whereas at inter-counties I think I felt a bit mentally tired and physically tired so it, I, it ended up being more of a battle and I couldn't just like dominate the way that I had done at Scottish Nationals yeah okay that's great and um how had the training so obviously intercounties i assume was your your final cross-country race of the of the year um how has the training typically leads up to your cross-country and, and during those cross-country races are you doing lots of sessions on grass over hills is it lots of strength type training um is that how you focus towards that sort of part of the season yeah so so i actually changed coach in december um and yeah, training has been really different to anything I've ever done before. Um, but yeah, a lot of like threshold work, a lot of um, doing a bit more grass sessions than I have done in recent years um, and kind of longer reps with hills in them. Um, and then, yeah, hill, hill reps are like a classic. Normally do like a little mix of like temple, hill, temple um, kind of work. Yeah. Okay. And then and then still actually keeping in touch with some track speed, which I've never done in the winter before. Normally in the winter, I don't go on the track at all. So like in April, I'll be like, oh, wow, I haven't stepped on a track since August. Whereas this winter, I've done at least a track session a week. Okay. Um, so normally I'll literally do like a road session, a track session and a, and a grass session. Right. OK, um, so I'm right in thinking Ross Cairns is your new coach. Yeah. yeah. Previously, Helen Clitheroe, you were yeah. with. Yeah. Okay. And um, so what is Ross like as a coach? Is he fairly hands-on? Is he um, someone that you have chats about and develop a plan together? Are you sort of always in contact or what, what's that relationship like? Yeah. So definitely always in contact. Um, I'll normally message him after like all of my runs and um, just we just generally chat about running and stuff in general. I've known Ross gone my whole life really um I he was my coach when I was a junior or he was the assistant coach when I was a junior um and we kind of always stayed in touch just because he started then coaching a bit more and I was older and he was coaching quite like young girls so he wanted my sort of input and advice on yeah. quantities and like can I come up and talk to them about periods and can I come up and talk to them about whatever so um yeah just and he's in love with athletics as a sport he thinks it's amazing so always chatting about those kind of things but I suppose in terms of a plan like he, he he's probably it, it's the, these are the most detailed training plans I've ever received and it's amazing and I, I love that he can justify and explain why all of the things are in the training plan where they are um, I'm not necessarily going to say I understand the answers but I like being able to ask questions about why things are where they are mm -hmm. particularly because the training is quite different to what I've done before okay. um, and yeah, I mean, I we probably try and see each other like fortnightly. Um, so he lives in Inverness, which is where my parents live. So, you know, it's a bit more complicated when there's competitions all the time, but I can try and go up once a month and he tries to come down here once a month. So, okay. um, yeah, for me, that face-to-face -face contact was like a key um, decider in, when I was looking for a new coach. Yeah, okay. And then, um, am I right in thinking you do quite a lot of your training with Megan Keith? Is, is she yes. one of the training partners? Yeah. Okay. So it must be great to have someone like Megan, who's um, obviously running really well at the moment as well. Um, I don't know if you push each other in sessions or have different strengths and weaknesses, but I suppose the importance of training partners can never be sort of overestimated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think before I joined Ross, I was doing a lot 
do all of my training on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember when the pandemic started and everyone was complaining about having to train alone. And I was like, guys, <laughs> I've been doing this for years. <laughs> like, this is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Megan and I trained together most sessions like we didn't yesterday because we had different kind of uh, schedules or whatever that day. But yeah, it's I think it works really well because she's like a very mature young athlete so she doesn't see racing and doesn't see training as racing which I've seen and was the same at that age I definitely was you know trying to win the world training championships um but she as well I think because we have different goals um and you know I look up to her because I think wow I can't believe you've achieved everything you've achieved at that age Mm -hmm. and she looks up to me just by virtue of me being older Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it's great and we just have fun with it um and I think that's one of the things that I was really missing okay that's great well you mentioned that so I'll ask you now I guess I I read that um you've said that at a time in your career perhaps running was very obviously still is very important to you but since you've been able to perhaps have more fun with it or take it less so intensely I suppose or less seriously you, you've seen that um, you've done well done well at the sport and you've, you've achieved more having a little more of a, a fun focus around is, is that something that you would still agree with? Yeah absolutely and it's something that like Ross as a coach encourages and sort of fosters that you know all of this should be fun um, you know, none of us need to do running to like feed our families. Um, it's not a requirement in this country. It's not really, there are other options to make money in this country. So um, we're in a very privileged position that it's something that we do because we love mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't really use that, lose that love for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I've, I think a lot of people end up using sport and, and physical activity to kind of channel frustrations or negativity from other areas of their life and and it can be a really positive thing to do that but I think I got to a point where I did that so much that actually running became all that negativity um and I became quite obsessive about very small details and lost the love for it as a result and I think when you running can be great and sport can be great because you get this sort of positive reinforcement and um self-confidence from it but if it becomes your only source of self-confidence when it's not going well, mm-hmm. then you just feel quite shit um, for want of a better expression. And, and I think that's when you kind of have to reassess and take a step back and, and understand what, why are you doing this sport and what is it bringing you? Mm-hmm. It's funny, isn't it? Even so speaking uh, for myself as a recreational runner, how you, you choose to do something, but then you're right. Sometimes it can get to the place of, being a negative and you start thinking well no one's making me do this if it's making me feel this way then perhaps I need to reevaluate my reasons for doing this um yeah. it's funny how it starts off so good intentioned and and having such a positive impact on your life but can shift the other way if if you're not careful yeah and I, and I think that's it like it's it's definitely that sort of um that it gives you that self-confidence because you can see improvement and progress but then if it becomes the only source of that then you know and I think that's why it's important to have other things going on in your life and I think a lot of elite athletes who only do running would also agree that actually they don't just do running Mm -hmm. and they have these other things that they can channel energy into if and when running isn't quite going the way they want it to. Yeah, I think that might also link back to what you were saying about process and outcome goals as well. I think sometimes we are so focused on outcome goals that if those aren't going well, then your whole feeling as a runner becomes warped. And if you're not hitting the times you want to hit, however arbitrary they may be, it starts to become a negative cycle. And and perhaps process goals are important in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, So if we move away from the cross country season, I suppose. I again read that you were uh, had some hopes of um, Commonwealth Games qualification, and this was a while ago. Is that still on your list? Is that the next thing to 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 attack? Yeah, yes. I mean, look, I'm under no illusion that the they're not taking massive teams this time round, and it's really tough. And 
um, it's not like, you know, just as, you know, I shouldn't be, nobody should be placing all of their self-worth on any one aim or goal within any sport, but um, it would be amazing. It would be a dream come true. I've always wanted to go to Commonwealth Games. Even as a kid, I never said like, I want to compete for GB or I want to go to the Olympics. For me, for some reason, it was Commonwealth Games. I don't know if it's because I get to represent Scotland or whatever. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think the times that are being asked would be times I would like to run this season anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I'm going to give it my best shot. But equally, like, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, I have other goals beyond the Commonwealth Games. Um, but yeah, it would be amazing. And uh, is that would that be in the five thousand and or ten thousand? It's sort of an and or situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm closer to the five k five k time um, by a, a big margin. <laughs> um, I'd have to really pull it out of the bag for the ten k time, but you never know. I think that ten k time needs a bit of rewriting. Okay, so I'm just looking at at them now. So um, Scotland, I believe the five thousand time is fifteen forty six. Yeah, and the ten thousand is thirty two thirty five. Yeah, um, and for your current five thousand PB, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's fifteen fifty one. Yeah, so I've run yeah fifteen fifty one, and I've run fifteen forty seven on the roads. Um, okay. So I sort of feel like I understand roads are different, but I feel like it's a second, Mary. Like you can do this. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. And then so, the time, I'm quite far off. So the 10,000 PB I've got for you currently is 32.58. Yeah. And that was at the, one of the, the night of the 10K PBs at Highgate. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I suppose you're, you're training with Ross now and your plan is, is to get some, I suppose, track races in, in the calendar relatively, relatively quickly for, to meet yeah. those sorts of deadlines. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, I'm going out to Portugal in a couple of weeks' time um, for warm weather training, and then I'm racing like almost straight away again. I get back. I'm going to Belfast to run at the I think it's Mary Peters track. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if I just did it first time round? <laughs> yeah, straight off the plane. <laughs> yeah, job right. done. No okay. stress now. So that's great. Uh, well, we wish you all the best with that, and obviously with it being a uh, well home games for for English uh, in Birmingham but uh, relatively close to home games for you that must give it an sort of added specialness I suppose would it? Yeah I mean hopefully it means pe- more people can come and watch it you know um, it, <laughs> if I make it <laughs> um, and yeah I think it's nice that I think it's good that the UK are hosting it and um, yeah with my work at Sport England it's interesting to see you know the legacy beyond the the games um, that they're kind of trying to have because of uh, the infrastructure that's being put in place and impacting local communities. Because I think as an it's nice to see both sides of it. Because as an athlete, you have this sort of like quite selfish single pursuit of a goal for your own gains, um, and you don't really think about the wider kind of consequences of a games being held in in the UK. Um, so it's quite nice to see what that looks like as well sure okay we've mentioned that your 5,000 and 10,000 pbs there um we often go through our guests pbs so i'll just mention your 3,000 as well which is 917 set at uh watford in in 2018 um and your 10k on the road um is when you came second at the brighton marathon 10k in in 2019 as well is that right so that was 3259 um i suppose some of your most proud moments though and your your biggest performance in terms of races must have been wearing the GB vest on on the cross country again so um so if you you ran for GB at the cross country world champs in Denmark 32nd place overall and fourth place team yeah uh, 2019 and you've raced in Slovakia and and um in the European Cup as well with the GB vest at the night of the 10k so I suppose just give us a feel about getting your first GB vest and and what it's like to represent GB? Yeah, so I was, um, I think, 22 when I first represented GB. Um, And, like, it was a bit of a shock for me. Um, I, at the start of that season, I was just recovering from what I think, in hindsight, was um, 
a double stress fracture in one in each shin. Um, I it never got diagnosed. I never had a scan, but um, it was very sore. <laughs> I didn't run for about a year um, properly. Um, so, and I remember at the time someone saying, oh, like, what do you actually want to achieve from running? And I was like, well, I would love to run for GB, but, you know, kind of pie in the sky, pipeline dream. Um, and they said, well, we'll just do it then make it happen so that was sort of my single track minded goal for the next like seven eight months um and yeah it sort of started slowly at the beginning of cross country that cross country season presenting itself as a possibility and I couldn't quite believe that I was competing on that kind of a stage I I had I think my previous highest placing at Liverpool was like 37th like it just don't know why I, of all people, decided that I could do this, but I had just decided it. Um, and I was the fourth automatic qualifier. Um, so kind of got the last automatic spot for the team. Um, and I remember, like, I just still didn't believe it. Um, I just assumed, I don't know, I'd heard all of these people say like, oh, you know, never know about British Athletics if they'll actually select you. So I was like, oh, well, they don't know who I am. Like, of course they're not gonna take me. Like, who am I? Like, they'll just think, oh, no, she's Scottish. Like, we won't really take her. And I had all these theories that I just wasn't actually going to get picked. And I didn't really believe it until the kit arrived in my door. And I was like, oh, my God, they found me. Um, it's real. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a, a surreal experience. Um, but I managed to somehow kind of take it all in my stride and not get too overwhelmed. And we went to Slovakia and I, I think it was ninth um individual and but unfortunately they had just changed it so I was the fourth counter but they'd made it three to count um so I was furious because I was like oh no I could have counted if it had been any other year um but no it was an amazing experience and like everybody was so friendly and um I tried to just learn and soak up as much as possible of that experience and um fortunately managed to also represent GB just later that year in the in the last ever Edinburgh International Cross, um, which was really special because I'd grown up watching that race as a little kid, going down to the sort of Scottish interdistrict that's on the same day. Um, so that was yeah really fun, and I just sort of felt like I was on a roller coaster ride, if I'm honest. Um, and yeah, I kind of had this like foreboding that it was all going to come crashing down, which it did. Um, but it, yeah, it was amazing and just very exciting and um, yeah, a, a, a huge learning experience. Yeah, for sure. And then so obviously Commonwealth Games, we've, we've spoken about um, if that happens, but wearing a GB vest again in the future, um, that must be on your your to-do list, I guess. And, and you see a, you know, a roadmap for that to happen over the cross country or otherwise? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, yeah, I'm not really sure what um, I'm doing if I don't make Commonwealth Games. Um, I think it's a bit of a toss up depending on how track is going. Um, obviously, I am probably not really fast enough to qualify for the Europeans or the Worlds that are on this summer, um, realistically. But you never know what will happen. Um, maybe I'll all of a sudden fall in love with track. Um, <laughs> Unlikely. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I quite want to move to the roads and that's what I'm quite keen to do. Um, so quite keen to, I haven't even done a half marathon. I keep signing up to them and then uh, I get ill or injured or a race is rescheduled or the race is cancelled uh, thanks COVID. Um, so yeah, kind of looking to move to the roads. So it'll probably hopefully be some sort of uh, maybe a ha world half marathon champs or um, something like that would be would be amazing. Yeah, we uh, our most recent interview was with Becky Briggs, and yeah. um, she uh, she was talking about her world half mar marathon champs experience in in Poland and and what an event that was. Um, so yeah, that would be great to to do something like that, and obviously to wear the GB vest again would would be brilliant, wouldn't it? And yeah. uh, so, what are your feelings about stepping up in distance? Is that something that you you're just excited about or some apprehensions about I mean to step up to the half marathon I'm just excited I don't have any apprehensions about that I run longer than a half marathon every weekend you know um 
like pretty pretty certain I can finish it. Um, I've done a ten mile race before, um, but that's as long as I've ever done. Um, but yeah, a marathon is a different beast. There's <laughs> so much respect to people that do them regularly, um, and I'm I am very excited to do one, and I look forward to when that happens. But yeah. Um, not under no illusions that that will be an easy uh, kind of beast to to tackle. Sure. Okay. Um, Mary, we, we like to sometimes look at the um, first entry into Power of Ten for our guests. And uh, yours was in 2007 as an under 13, um, where in Inverness you ran a 1500 meters. Um, and you won in a time of 5.28 in September. Do you remember that at all? Rapid. Um, <laughs> probably, so yeah, maybe I do remember it. I'm not sure. I really, like, if I don't like track now, I really hated it then. Um, I probably had a tantrum about having to do that. I think I did steeplechase. I dabbled in steeplechase for a while after that because my coach was like, Mary, it's just like cross-country on the track. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I wore my trainers, so I didn't have spikes um I also wore trainers for cross country I'd done quite a lot of cross country before this that wasn't like my first ever race um uh but yeah I was quite often the only person in those races as well okay fine but, but um relatively young then I guess racing and running as an under 13 and, and before um what drew you to the sport in the first place um, yeah, so I, I started in primary school actually. Um, I won the Scottish Primary School Cross Country Championships when I was uh, in primary seven, I think. So I don't actually, I think, no, primaries are still the same in England. Um, so that's still primary seven. Um, it's secondary school, it gets confusing for me. Um, but yeah, I, I well, so my, my school janitor um, used to run like lunchtime school cross-country sessions okay. um which were essentially run a lap of the school pitch as fast as you can um on a tuesday and thursday lunchtime and i didn't do it um but my family were very sporty so we did like mountain biking and canoeing and hiking and in primary school you're always having to do like a what did you do at the weekend like postcards and so everyone in my class knew that we did these things and I remember one girl came up to me and was like oh you think you're so fit and sporty but you don't even do cross country right. So yeah, so I did cross country uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just got really into it. Um, I, I think I thought it would be really boring. Um, I was like, this is so, like I do extreme sports. This is, this is not even a sport. You're just running around a field. Um, but yeah, I think I really liked being able to beat the boys. Um, that was a hard pill to swallow when they hit puberty and that stopped happening. Right. Okay, that's great. And then finally, then before we get on to some of your your work with Kinesica Advocacy, I wanted to talk about just quickly your um, support from Hoka, and um, I suppose that that must be a, a, a nice help. And and uh, and Hoka, we've spoken about quite a lot on this podcast, just because they seem to be very much helping out athletes. Um, at a level that is that sort of elite athletes, but um, also athletes perhaps who are working as well, who are, who are trying to make their athletics career work. They seem to have found a, a nice niche there, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I joined in November. Um, and yeah, I can only thank like Chris Rainsford at Hoka and just Hoka in general um, for taking me on. Um, I wasn't running anywhere near my best. Um, when they signed me and I think it was just yeah having that backing and the belief from them when I didn't have it in myself was really significant um, and yeah I've had a lot of crap <laughs> happen in the last couple of years but it was yeah it's just it's it's great and I think sometimes when you start performing well or you start representing GB you're almost like okay where's my deal now where's my kit deal where's my sponsor um, and it's almost this like people expect that you're just going to get sponsored the second you run for GB and it almost never happens like that um, it's it's not the be all and end all but it's for me very much about like having people behind you and a team behind you who feel like they believe in you and Hoka was a brand I used anyway um, and I liked what they stood for as an organization and as a, as a company and I like that they, yes, are absolutely about athlete performance, but 
equally look at like the whole person and what you what you stand for as a person and who you are and what makes you you and what your long-term goals are and I think it's they just they see a fuller picture um than sometimes it seems like other brands do yeah okay great well that that sort of um, leads us into our next um section um in terms of what you stand for as an, an as an individual and um, I wanted to talk about for a little while um your work um alongside your running and your your campaigning um and your development of uh Kainiska advocacy which is um I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly um, um honestly it's probably open to interpretation it's okay. the uh, it's the name actually of a Spartan princess <laughs> uh, from BC times. So yeah, we we say Kaniska, but Kaniska. Okay, it's a bit of a Nike Nike. Okay, no, I'll, I'll I'll follow your lead. That's fine. Yeah, so I, I did do a bit of research on the name actually, and she um, it says the first woman to win at the Olympic Games um, competing in the sport of chariot racing, so mm-hmm. about three ninety six BC, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, great. Anyway, the the. I suppose I, I'd like to ask you about um, so so the the campaign and the organisation is about um, safe and equitable sport for women and for females through generations across sports. Um, you co-founded it with fellow athlete Kate Seary, um, and perhaps we can talk about some of the the campaigns and the work that you've done. But for, for listeners, perhaps who who don't know much about it, what were the motivations in in starting that organisation? Um, what are the aims and and what are the goals of of, of that? So yeah, we launched Kaniska uh, almost a year ago now. Um, sort of born out of a frustration with national governing bodies and sports councils, um, we felt that not enough was being done to protect um, and, and yeah, protect and respect and celebrate women and girls in all sports, particularly athletics, but but equally. Um, kind of looking after the welfare and safeguarding um, was was initially how it was um, launched Um, and it just felt like there were multiple stories in the news both about athletics and also other sports of athletes trying to campaign and trying to advocate and not not action not being taken Um, we launched an initial campaign with another athlete um, called Anna Gordon to call for lifetime bans for coaches found guilty of sexual misconduct and abuse. And off the back of that, we started sort of consulting with UK athletics um, off of kind of around what others what other measures we thought needed to be implemented. And then Kate one day just called me up and was like, I think we should do an organization. Like I think that there's more to do here. Um, and uh that is where my career in academia ended and I started working in policy and public affairs. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why we launched it. Um, and the work that we're doing at the moment, so we, I suppose, have two principal focuses currently, um, just because we are two people <laughs> and it's a passion project. So we are principally working around female athlete health. Um, so enhanced coach education but also kind of trying to break the bias of this narrative around your sporting performance being equated to what your body looks like um and your yeah your sport outcomes or your goals being contingent on having this athletic body appearance um so we're looking at getting it to be a mandatory requirement for all coaches to sit a course on female athlete health and how to talk about female athlete health in a safe way um, and an appropriate way, but also like how it actually impacts training and what it means in different cycles and how important periods are, but essentially trying to get it implemented from a policy point of view. So we've been negotiating with um, UK coaching, but equally the um equally with UK athletics on their renewed coaching strategy um, and kind of ensuring that both safeguarding and female athlete health are intertwined at all levels um, which to be honest was actually their initial aim anyway we've just fed into that a bit Um, and then the other side of our work is around um, kind of 
stamping out sexual violence in sport. So that's not just specific to athletics, but um, all sports. So we're currently writing a, a, it's called a policy briefing or a policy recommendations report um, with calls for policy implementation within and legislation within both government and national governing body sport councils. Um, and we will be having a panel conference event in April to kind of talk about the importance of that and get organizations to make a pledge to start acting upon those things. Mm. Um, so that's kind of like the nitty gritty of our work. And then we have a kind of, we have a blog where we have athlete contributors who talk about barriers they've faced or like think controversies they've experienced um, as well as like an Instagram page. And we work with ambassadors to understand hurdles they have in their individual sports and help with athlete development like career development as well. So I think a lot of what athletes discuss when leaving elite sport is that they sort of feel like they've got no work experience or um, skills to that are transferable to the workplace, mm-hmm. which is false. We have a lot of other qualities, but um, tend kind of to give athletes part-time work experience that's demonstrable to employers when you leave sport. Um, yeah. Okay, that's great. So, so some of your, your current campaigns I've seen um, on your website as well include, say, Safe on the Streets, um, the Sportwide Zero Tolerance, which I think you mentioned, and then Transparent and Fair Funding, um, and then obviously Reclaiming the Athletic Aesthetic, as, as you mentioned as well. Um, also, interestingly, uh, within the vision, um, I thought was a really in- interesting uh, point is that you mentioned a world where men's sport isn't the default standard for women's sport. Yeah. And so I suppose my question is, um, obviously it's great to be talking about it and raising awareness and to get people involved. How much of a challenge though is, is, is the next step of, of the changes actually happening and being implemented? How much of a barrier do you face when it actually comes to making things change? Um, it really depends on the national governing body. And it depends on the people behind an organization. Um, I think there are a lot of people, there is definitely an appetite for change at the moment. Um, I think it's the right time. Um, There's been a lot of talk for quite a long time about making change, but no change has been happening Mm -hmm. Um, because it's too complicated or it's too difficult or other things take precedence. And I think especially within sport, there's such a focus on performance. and medals Olympics and, and major champs and I'm absolutely not suggesting that sport shouldn't be about that um, I think it's just questioning whether or not the environment that athletes are participating in is safe <laughs> and um, I think for example Simone Biles is a perfect example of that you know she was achieving but not within a safe environment and that's not sustainable and it shouldn't be in, it shouldn't be something that we're kind of allowing to happen um but yeah no there's always going to be barriers and it's not going to be an easy job um which is why no one's done it so far um so yeah sometimes it can be a bit frustrating but um yeah we're young so we have uh some more motivation and then we'll get tired and cynical and someone else will take it up for us and then i suppose on that do you have you and Kate sort of set out long-term goals and plans or is it just sort of taking each campaign as it comes and and do you have a vision for the future of what what this organization might look like? Yeah I mean I think what we we want to do is is build that ambassador program so that we are sort of we will eventually not be the athletes anymore I think what's unique about what we do is that we're athlete-led or you know people with lived experience led and and eventually we will stop being athletes. So the idea is that the ambassador program will be almost become a sort of training program for athletes who want to get involved in activism and, and campaigning. And we train them to go and speak to mm-hmm. um, and lobby ministers and heads of NGBs and sports councils so that they are listened to because athletes are listened to. Like, and it's really um, getting people to realize the power of the athlete voice Mm-hmm. Um, or anyone with lived experience in any sector, like that's applicable across the board. Um, but yeah, I mean, our long, long-term plans would be to get something like 
in America, they have legislation in government called Title IX, which is um, includes a whole section on kind of gender equity in sport. And Title IX is really good in some ways, and it's less good in other ways. Um, and I think there's lots to learn from them, but we don't have anything like that in the UK um, in terms of legislation. So, yeah, long term goal would be getting something like that within uh, Whitehall, which um, I'll probably die before that happens. <laughs> but maybe one day. Okay, that's great. Um, I, I wondered if you, and you can feel free not to get into this if, if you don't want to, but um, there's quite a lot of news at the moment about the transgender athlete debate, um, particularly um, there's a swimmer called Leah Thomas in America. Um, she's just actually won the first transgender woman to win an NCAA title. Um, yeah. I wonder if that is the type of thing that you are uh, interested in, in getting into or campaigning about, or if you just have a, a general opinion about that. Yeah. <laughs> so big question, you know. So um, question, and it's a really complex topic, and could probably talk about it for hours. Um, I talk about it quite a lot already. Um, I've been following the story with Leah Thomas, and I think, well, I think that the argument and the debate around this topic is so divisive and there's nobody really sitting in the middle of the, this argument um there are people on the side that think that all trans athletes and again so this argument is completely one-sided because nobody is arguing that um trans men are ruining men's sport they're only arguing that trans women are ruining women's sport so that's one side of the argument that it's like um, effacing women's sport and damaging it. And, and we need to save women's sport from these trans female athletes or trans women athletes, which I don't think is the right tact. I don't think that's the right argument because we can't suggest that like the percentage of athletes who are trans women is so small. You can't suggest that that entire group is effacing and taking over women's sports because it's factually incorrect. But equally, I do think that there, so for example, Sport England and the other sports councils back in, I think it was November last year, released guidance on transgender athlete inclusion for NGBs. Um, and they discussed that there's like, there's not gonna be one shoe or one size fits all because all sports are different. Um, and that you, the, what's important to take into account is the gender effective nature of sport. That term is slightly confusing, but is referred to in the Gender Equality Act from 2010. What do they really mean is sex effective nature? Um, so like how much does physical outcomes and like the advantages of being born a man, how much does that play out in the performance outcome of the sport? So if it's like a strength sport or an endurance sport, then maybe you need to look into having like a women's category and an open category. Um, and I think I was reading an article last night actually by um, an academic, but also female coach specifically about the Leah Thomas issue um, or case. And yeah, I just think it's so contentious and until there is sound um, scientific like research that's really backed and peer reviewed and um, coherent and comprehensive. It's really difficult. And I do think that like currently the science says that there are um, performance advantages to having been born a man, even if you are managed, like even if you're capable of reducing your testosterone levels um, to the same as that of a woman, there are still advantages to you having had that muscle growth and bone development of early years of being born a man. And so you will have performance advantages. That being said, some women can beat some men anyway. So it's not a, like, you just, there's just not a blanket rule or a blanket statement that we can put out. But yeah, I do think that basically what this uh, one researcher was arguing that a sort of female and open category would be the sort of current um, solution until we know more. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that would seem the fairest. But I don't think that we should be like demonizing 
trans athletes and suggesting that they're just doing this to win because that's not right either and that's not that's not the case I just think like trying not to take too extreme a position either way and trying to be measured and analytical about what you read and making sure you read both sides of the argument because you might have a personal gut instinct feeling but you know make sure you read both sides and also the in-between because this is such a complex issue um yeah, sorry, I feel like I've rambled, but it, it's just, I could talk about it all day. No, no, that's fine. And as you said, it is hugely complex and complicated and nuanced. And I think that debate needs to be reflective of that and, and the science and, and everything else. So it's not a, a debate that is often had well on Twitter and social platforms, but it needs to be had somewhere. Um, yeah, and absolutely like acknowledging all of my areas of ignorance in that like I'm not a trans woman. I've never met a trans female like athlete at all. So I've never spoken with them to understand their position, their feelings. So you know um yeah there's just it's never endingly complex. <laughs> yeah okay. Um Another one I wondered, just a final thought on, I suppose, is being a cross-country specialist yourself as well. Where, where would, did you sit on the uh, most recent sort of uh, discussion about male and female distances being equal or, or not across country? Is that something that you um, were passionate about one way or the other? So I have a personal preference and then I have an argument for the interest of the sport. So... I am better at long distances. Uh, so yeah, longer is better. That's great. Cool. But equally, um, I think it does detriment the sport because I think if you, so there's already, there are fewer female women participants in cross country than there are men. We don't have the same depth. So what we want to do is increase the participants as much as possible and if that means having a shorter race so that we can have people who maybe do like 5ks or are track specialists dabble in some cross country in the winter when they're building endurance and base I think that that's best like I think that we're not in a position where we have so many women competing in cross country only and who are distance specialists and cross country specialists which isn't really a thing um that, that we can say equal distances. I think equal distances threatens to impact the depth at the high level of cross-country competitions. Okay, yeah. But personally, love a <laughs> Okay. Again, something that we could have a full hour-long conversation on. Um, but listen, I've taken up a lot of your time already, Mary. So um, thank you for, for those thoughts. I wondered if we could just finish with a... A couple of light-hearted quick fire questions that, that we normally do here um, yeah of course cool okay so first one we always ask our guests so if you could go on a run with any sports person dead or alive who would it be oh um probably molly seidel <laughs> i think she's a legend um and i love her not too serious attitude to um elite sports yeah okay brilliant um if you could go back in time to witness any sporting events live what where would you go and what would you watch oh like the the first ever olympics ancient olympics okay 100%. okay yeah i just yeah. think that would be sick watch some chariot racing or something yeah. Like cool. yeah, yeah absolutely watch the original marathon to marathon yeah okay um what's your favorite race and not the distance but your your actual race that you you love the most or like the most um for a cross-country runner weird answer but uh night of the 10ks at Highgate um if you can get anyone to love track that's the race to go to okay so we may be seeing you again there this year potentially that is the hope it is contingent on me running the 5k time before that race it's a bit okay. of a deal with my coach but yes hopefully Okay, cool. Do you have any sort of go-to um, pump up or specific music before big sessions or big races that you like to listen to? It changes all the time. I'm that person that over listens to songs until you hate them. But um, Taylor Swift for me, honestly, is a good go-to. But generally, yeah, whatever I'm currently listening to a hundred times a day. Okay, cool. And uh, any superstitions or 
anything you do before races that um, are superstitions? Um, so I try to avoid superstitions, but I um, don't wear socks that have left and right on them. So basically I don't wear running socks um, because I used to have this weird thing where I wouldn't look at which sock I was putting on. So I would just like pick this pair up and put them on. And if I put them on the right feet, then it meant I was gonna have a good race. And if I put them on the wrong feet, it meant I was gonna have a bad race. So now I just don't wear socks with left and right on them because my brain hates me. Right. Okay. Well, that is as good as anywhere to uh, to finish up on. So, Mary, thank you very much for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. We wish you all the best of luck going into track season and and maybe trying to hit those those times. Um, is there any sort of website or Instagram that you want to let the listeners know about, whether yours or um, your your organisation that they could check out? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, Kaniska has a um, Instagram page uh which is difficult to spell so um i don't know if you'll link it in the stuff yeah, the technology um yeah kinetic advocacy um my own is um like mary mac i think although to be fair i don't really post anything that's that interesting um and then kinetic has a website as well so kinetic um yeah check it out great mary thank you very much and, and best of luck for everything thanks very much Oh, 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 oh,